For more than four decades, Ken Go transported his readers to front row seats for some of the biggest events in sports. In print, and later also online, Ken spent much of his career bringing to life the iconic races in track and field that we all wished we could see in person. His work transcended sports journalism and made him a trusted source for the story of the race and the story behind the race. Ken recently retired from his full-time position at the Oregonian. After a brief and hard-earned respite at the Oregon coast, he joined us for a discussion about the past, present, and future of competitive running and the greatest moments of his writing career. Here's Ken Go and Mile 62 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Go, legendary sports writer from the Oregonian. Welcome to the Seconds Flat program. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing good, though. I wouldn't describe myself as legendary. Maybe in my own mind, but <laughs> you might not say it, uh, but I would, and many fans of track and field would agree. First, congratulations on your retirement and the great career. You really have been a uh, gold standard of track and field coverage for a lot of years, so it's an honor to have you join the show. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. In your final column for the Oregonian, you mentioned that you weren't really a track guy before you began covering the sport. Uh, tell us more about your first assignments covering running and what eventually drew you to love it. Yeah, you know, there were fits and starts. I, I covered some track as a young reporter uh, covering high schools in the Portland area. Um, so I had some experience with it. I was scared to death of track beyond that, the elite level and the college level, because it, there seemed to be so much specialized knowledge. And I didn't have any track background. Um, more ball sports guy, uh, football, basketball, baseball. Um, and there were a lot of things that to me seemed very counterintuitive about track. And it, uh, the numbers part of it made me nervous. I'm um, the kind of guy that uh, struggles with basic math. So conversions and all that stuff were, were difficult. So I didn't really want to do it. Uh, I was assigned to uh, in the late 80s and early 90s to cover the University of Oregon's teams, which were at that point still very good. Shortly after that, though, uh, the University of Oregon went into a decline where they weren't as good as they had been. And um, they also stopped having home meets to any great extent. So um, we didn't cover them the way that we had in the past. Uh, in 2005, Nike, uh, people at Nike wanted to see that change. So they made a concentrated effort to go out and find Vinland, to get Vinland Anna, who had done a really good job at uh, Stanford. And I think impressed people at Nike, uh, both with his technical knowledge and his coaching knowledge, but also his ability to build a program around distance runners, which is of course near and dear to Nike's founding ethos. And so they brought him in, but they didn't bring him in just to coach the team. They brought him in uh, with the goal of sort of remaking Eugene and Hayward Field, Tracktown USA. Um, and I think he succeeded on all counts. He, he sort of reawakened the track program uh, in Eugene. Uh, he 
Uh, they started having meets at home. I think it, at one point they had as many as five home meets during the college outdoor season, which is a lot. I, I don't know of too many other schools that attempt to do that. Um, and he also went out and got big meets. They, they started uh, bidding and hosting NCAA championships. They brought in the Olympic trials in 2008, 2012, 2016, and, you know, whenever the next one is, I don't know what was supposed to be in 20. It's supposed to be in 21 now, you know, who knows. But anyway, they, they sort of, under Lenana's direction, they made uh, Eugene track town USA again. And, and because of all that, uh, that uh, uproar and, and interest that, that Vin Lenana uh, created by sort of restarting that, uh, it became a story again. And the, the Oregonian assigned me to do it. Um, again, uh, still, I was still pretty nervous about the numbers and a lot of the specialized knowledge with track. <clears throat> but what I discovered, uh, to my delight, was how interesting the athletes were. And compared to, to uh, other athletes I dealt with, they were uh, very knowledgeable, very patient, very articulate, um, very introspective, and they didn't mind talking to reporters. So I think a lot of uh, big-time college football and basketball players are sort of jaded with that part of it. Uh, track athletes were not. And so I, I found uh, covering the sport uh, was something I really came to love, uh, not so much the meets, but, but getting to know the people. And um, that, that's still true. I, track athletes, I think, are the best. And um, I hope uh, to continue to freelance for the Oregonian um, occasionally and, and uh, hope to continue to, to be around and be exposed to the, the great people that track athletes are. Are there any particular athletes that you connected with in those early years? Yeah, you know, I get asked this a lot, and it, I almost hesitate to start naming names because almost all of them are great. And, but, you know, one that really stands out is Nick Simmons, who's a half-miler, 800-meter runner uh, uh, from little Division three school in Oregon, uh, Willamette University, who sort of burst on the scene about that time when I was uh, beginning, re-beginning my time as a a track writer. Um, and he was just fun. There, everything about Nick was fun. He was a, sort of a larger than life personality. He didn't look like a lot of 800 other 800 runners because he was short and stubby. Uh, his running style was not classic. Um, and he often was coming way out of the back uh, successfully. And uh, once you got him, he was a great interview. He was a very colorful personality. He always had something interesting to say that the, the biggest problem with covering Nick was trying to keep up with him and you know your recorder better be working because there's no way you were going to keep up with him uh notes wise but you know he was really interesting you know there were others uh English Gardner was a sprinter at the University of Oregon was a uh, great quote uh, very articulate um and fun to talk to uh boy uh like I say I, I once I start naming names I, I feel like I'm gonna leave somebody out Andrew Weeding uh a great 800-meter, uh, 1,500-meter runner at, at the University of Oregon and went on to a very successful professional career. Shalane Flanagan, uh, distance runner who settled in Portland to run professionally, very uh, accommodating and, and friendly and, and easy to talk to. But, um, Shannon Roberry, the same way. You know, it's just, like I say, once I start naming names, I feel like um, I'm going to leave somebody out because it's, it's more rare to find one that, that isn't friendly isn't easy to talk to. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned Andrew and, and we just had him on recently and uh, he's so 
transparent and, and forthcoming with, with his experiences. And, and I wondered there, as you started to run through a great list of names, do you think to some degree, maybe the lack of coverage that track gets across the nation leads those folks to be more willing to share their story with you? Yeah, I think there is something to that. And I also think, you know, they're, they're all, they all have sponsorship deals. That's how they make their money to a large extent. So I think it's at their advantage to be uh, accommodating to the media because that's free publicity, right? I mean, um, every time Shalane Flanagan gets interviewed and a picture's taken of her, she's wearing Nike gear, right? So that, that's a, a benefit to Nike uh, to do that. And, and Nick uh, always had an eye on that too. He, when he was running professionally, first for uh, the Oregon track level elite and, and Nike and later with Brooks, he, he always made sure that the sponsors got their plugs and, and he that would made, gave him a, a smooth transition into his business now, uh, Run Gum, which he's very adept at promoting himself. Yeah, he is all over YouTube. Uh, he, he has become a, a totally different type of star now post-career. You mentioned Nike and Vin LaNana trying to rebuild Tracktown USA and immensely successful with that. Describe the relationship between the state of Oregon and distance running, if you can. That love affair that maybe isn't so big elsewhere, but it is at the heartbeat of Eugene, Oregon and Portland, Oregon. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, when that blossomed, uh, Eugene wasn't that unique. I think other places had big time college track programs, uh, but I think, sort of Steve Prefontaine was the guy that sort of took it to the next level here. It, he had so much charisma and uh, he had a very devoted following um, in Eugene. Uh, and I think those people stayed and became fans of the sport even after track began to decline in other places. So, you know, and, and he wasn't the only one, you know, you know, there's a long list of great University of Oregon distance runners. Um, but, but he had the kind of charisma that a lot of those others don't. And, I'm a little too young to have seen him run professionally, but you hear the stories of the, of the way he would warm up and just during warmups that the crowd would go nuts when he came out to run. And uh, having read a lot about it, I suspect part of it was his zest for competition and the, he ran to win, right? I mean, he, a lot of times somebody runs for a time, you, you try to get a qualifying time or whatever in the sport that was never him. You know, he was going to try to win. And I, uh, I think that resonates with people. And, and if, if there's one thing I think the sport's maybe gotten away from on occasion is that it's a competition first, that, that, that uh, you know, the personal records and the qualifying standards and all that are, are nice and, and important to the athletes and important for their development as athletes. But what the public wants to see is somebody win a race. And um, I think if sports ever, if the sport is ever going to again, become a, a strong spectator sport, it's got to return to that. It's got to emphasize uh, meets where people win, not, um, you know, distance carnivals where everybody's trying to break a certain standard. And, and um, I mean, track fans geek out about that and they love it, you know, 15 people under the qualifying standard or whatever. I think that turns off the general public. I mean, they want to know who won. So that's just my two cents. No, it's, it's a great point, Ken, because I, I like to step back from my perspective as a running nerd 
and maybe take it to another sport that I casually will watch, but don't quite understand with, with the level, same level of depth. And say swimming, for example, I can vividly remember Michael Phelps out-touching the competition by whatever it was, fraction of a second in a relay to win, to win a gold medal as he racked up all those medals. I have no clue what the time was, but that still looms in my mind as one of the greatest sporting events I've ever watched. And, and I, I suspect for the casual fan of running, what you're saying is very true. And is another great piece of the lasting legacy of pre that, that, as you called it, zest for competition, which I think is spot on, trickled down to make that place where he ran still a centerpiece of track nationally and globally. Uh, you've been vocal about making the new Hayward Field in Eugene potentially a permanent home for some of our bigger national meets. Why and also how might that elevate the sport? Yeah, well, um, it, it's, you know, without, I haven't been on the inside. I'll start off by, with that disclaimer. Um, I, very few people have who are not uh, part of the University of Oregon track program or uh, prominent alumni. But I think for, for everything I've read and understand about it, it's, it's gonna be the preeminent track stadium in the country, one of the best in the world. So it, it makes sense to me uh, if you're gonna hold national championships, at least NCAA championships, I'll start there. It, it makes sense uh, to have it there at least, I don't, I don't know if it has to be permanent, but semi-regular, semi-permanent, be, just because of the, uh, the platform that it provides the athletes and the competition. It's, you know, there, there isn't gonna be a, a better one. And, you know, the other part of that is people still care about tracks. There's still a spectator sport in Eugene in a way that it's not other places. I've, I have covered uh, NCA meets in Arkansas and um, uh, Iowa, Sacramento. Um, and it's uh, just not the same in those places. Uh, and that was in the, with the old Hayward, but before, you know, they had this $200 million plus uh, palace that that's been built. So I think for, for the NCAA's uh, meet to uh, attain the stature of a, a college baseball world series or the college softball world series, which, which have permanent homes, it, it makes sense to, to have it in Eugene. Now I, I get the counter argument, you know, uh, if, if you're the University of Florida or, you know, the University of South Carolina or, or wherever, that's a long ways to go. It's not an easy, Eugene is not an easy place to get to. And, and I get that. It's an expensive trip. Uh, hotel space is limited. Uh, the weather uh, generally is pretty good, though. Pollen can be a problem at that time of year. Uh, so, I mean, so there are drawbacks to it. But I think the, the positive things that you would get out of having uh, the NCA meet there on a regular basis outweigh the negatives point you just made about connecting it to a specific place being an elevating factor for a sport that is not at the highest level of public focus, I think is really insightful when you brought up the College World Series. That is so rooted in Omaha. And we as viewers know that every year. And, and there's just some kind of special connection there. Um, I'm sure there's other events that, that are the same way. You know, we're talking right now and it's, it's Masters weekend. You, know, you think about Augusta National maybe in, in the same type of way. Th that could be a, a really neat way um, 
to make an NCAA track championship or perhaps the Olympic trials, whatever it might be, more memorable for, for the average fan. Do you have a favorite memory from the old Hayward? Yeah, it's probably the, the most favorite single thing I've ever covered in 43 years as a sports writer was the uh, Olympic trials in 2008, the men's 800 meter final, which uh, part of that's uh, provincial. The guys that went one, two, three were all Oregon based athletes. Um, but, and part of it's the way they won it or the way they went one, two, three, none of the three was in contention probably with 250 meters to go. But I think that's when about when Simmons made his move. Um, and they came from way back. And then the reaction of the crowd, I, boy, I've covered a lot of events. I've covered final fours. I've covered Olympics. I never remember a crowd reaction like that as, as the runners were coming down the home straight and it was pretty clear Simmons was going to come from behind and win the thing, but weeding was coming outside. Uh, weeding was not, I mean, it was sort of a surprise that he was even in the final and, and he came way wide uh, down the home straight to, to get second. And I didn't realize until after the race that Christian Smith, who at the time was training with OTC elite had come on the inside and dove across the finish line. And I occasionally go back and watch that the NBC uh, clip on, YouTubes of that race, just because it, it's so remarkable. But it, nobody else except maybe Christian Smith knew he finished third either. Because if if you watch Simmons' eyes as he turns to look to see his time, and he notices Christian Smith is third, you can see him do a double take. That that moment to me is that that's like that's what sports is about. That's that's competition. That's running to win. That's defying the odds. That's uh, succeeding despite everything. It, it you know I I. I find it just remarkable. I still find it remarkable. Yeah, we've talked about that race a few times here on the show, and I will once again encourage everyone who hasn't seen it or needs to see it again to get on YouTube and watch that clip of a spectacular finish. Uh, one of the final events that you covered is the recent uh, Galen Rupp half marathon time trial in Eugene. Uh, he has been probably the most scrutinized male runner of this generation. Uh, what are your thoughts on Rupp's legacy and where he ranks in the pantheon of American greats? Well, uh, I'll start from the back and or start from your last question and work back. Uh, he's got to be up near the top. Um, if you just look at his achievements, two Olympic medals and events that a few years ago, Americans had no chance to, to be competitive in uh, silver medal and 2012 at the London Olympics, a bronze medal uh, in the marathon in 2016. Uh, so there, there's that. Um, it's unfortunate that uh, he, he's, his legacy is gonna be clouded by his association with the Oregon Project and Alberto Salazar. I think unfairly, um, uh, I don't know uh, what more he has to do to, to prove that he, he's innocent of doping. Um, and no matter how he tried, it, it's like a, you know, the old question, when did you stop beating your wife? Nobody believes it when he denies. So um, uh, there's, there's really nothing he can do to take that um, cloud that he's going to have over him. Again, I think unfairly, uh, some of that uh, probably has to do with his personality. He's uh, very reserved, quiet, doesn't seek the spotlight is, is sort of the anti Nick Simmons, right? Uh, 
that Nick was very good at promoting himself. Galen's not interested in that. Galen just wants to run. Um, it's hard to get past that wall of uh, sort of mistrust he has of other people. I, I think it's getting easier. In, re in recent years, I think he's been a little more open and, and forthcoming towards the end of his career, but um, he's never going to be, you know, uh, Nick Simmons, uh, uh, Adam Nelson sort of character. Uh, but I think if you can get past that, you find out he's a very warm, very nice person, very family oriented, uh, very smart. He, you know, he was a four point plus student at the University of Oregon, uh, very dedicated to his craft. So uh, I think it's unfortunate. And, you know, that's sort of the world we live in now with competitive running, right? If, if you're too good, um, people immediately are saying, well, you know, what's he on? You know, how come he got so good? And, and then, of course, all the, the accusations about Alberto Salazar haven't helped. He, you know, he and Alberto had almost a father-son relationship for a long time. So I guess, I guess as I say, his legacy is going to be complicated. But take, throw all that aside, just look at his achievements, and he's got to be considered one of the best American distance runners ever. Given the length of their association and their relationship, it is hard to, to disentangle the two. I, I thought that being in Atlanta last February, on that day in those conditions, on that course, that may have been his best performance. Uh, that was an incredibly challenging race and the way he controlled it to, to win. So with that said, and, and you see the result in, in the halftime trial and from your interactions with Galen, uh, what are your thoughts? What do you make of his progress toward Tokyo Olympics, assuming they happen next summer? Yeah, you know, I, I think he'll he'll be fine. I think he'll, uh, assuming he's healthy. And uh, as you know, uh, as distance athletes age, that's often the biggest hurdle that they have to clear is to stay healthy. You know, it, his talent isn't going to go away. His, his cardiovascular endurance isn't going to go away. His knowledge of of running the races, uh, his experience, uh, his understanding of what he has to do to, to be competitive and, and to, to win. None of that's going to go away, but um, I think he's 34 now. I mean, he's getting to a point where it's harder and harder to, for a distance runner to stay healthy unless you're some sort of freak, like maybe Abdi, Abdurrahman, uh, but, but most, it, or uh, Bernard Lagat, but, but most people don't, aren't able to do that and sustain that, you know, Tom Brady has done it in, in the NFL, but, but those are atypical people. And, and to me that that's um, uh, going to be Galen's biggest hurdle going forward is, is uh, staying healthy. But, but if he can do that, a big if, I think he's right in the, in medal contention in, in uh, Tokyo, assuming there are is a Tokyo Olympics. That's right. Are you willing to make an early prediction on his medal chances? No, I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into meddling, right? Um, you, you can run the race of your life, but if, if three other people run their races of their lives, you may not meddle. I, uh, I remember in London at the, in 2012, uh, men's 800 final. I mean, how many of those people ran the best race they'd ever run and, and how many of those people would have meddled or even won the gold in another year? It just happened to be the year when, you know, you, you could, and they go back to Nick Simmons, he never ran a better 800 meters, and I think I believe he finished fourth. So, quite possibly the greatest race of all time, right? Yeah. And so, so much of that is 
out of your control as an athlete that what David Radish is doing from the gun that right. day. Yeah. So sure. Bigger picture here on, on one hand, your career at the Oregonian closes with a really renewed enthusiasm for elite level marathoning. We've had in recent years, Americans win majors, Rupp in Chicago, Shalane, Dez. Uh, you've had Kipchoge and his assault on breaking two. Then on the flip side, you have track and field programs across the country right now that are getting eliminated due to budget issues in the pandemic. What is the current uh, health and state of the sport? I think it's at a tipping point, to be honest. I think, um, I think people need to start uh, reimagining how the sport's going to look coming outside the pandemic. And I think the old model of depending on uh, the American college system to, to train your athletes uh, is maybe not something that people can rely on any longer. You know, the, what's happened at, at Clemson is sad. Uh, and, and on one hand, it, it seems really unfair. You look at uh, what Clemson spends on its football program, and, and I think the track budget would be just a portion of Dabo Swinney's salary. I mean, just, and that just his salary, and not to mention all the other things that the football program has. Um, and it, it just doesn't, that part doesn't seem fair. But the other flip side of that is Clemson isn't known by the average fan for its track program. It's known for its football program. And uh, the football program brings in money, even with everything it spends. And, you, you know, they spend money like drunken sailors at that level. They're still making money. And, and to a certain extent, to be at Clemson's level in football, you have to spend that way because um, if you don't keep up with Alabama and Ohio State, you're not going to be competitive with Alabama and Ohio State. So I think on, uh, for a long time, um, while there was no stress like the pandemic on athletic departments, um, it was pretty easy for college track to operate however it wanted. I mean, no, the athletic director isn't paying a lot of attention to, to college track. He's concerned about football and, or she, football and basketball. And so a track basically did what the University of Oregon did during that period before Lenana came. Um, didn't really worry about the fans. Didn't care. Wasn't, wasn't a big factor. I mean, it, uh, what a lot of programs do, probably most programs, right? You, you uh, look at the track schedule when it comes out. Uh, where are the big invitationals? Um, uh, at least the top programs. They're not worrying about appealing to their fans. They're worried about getting uh, – their runners or their throwers or their jumpers qualified for the NCAs. And how do they do that? They go to wherever the competition's best. So those people are competing against the best athletes uh, from around the country. And so they get, they meet qualifying standards and they, they get, they sharpen up for, for the national competition. Um, go to the Stanford Invitational. Uh, we're, we're, there's a few hundred people in the stands watching 11 10,000 meter races go off one after another. Um, fans, you know, Joe Sixpack is totally forgotten in that scenario. And so when, when the budget stress comes and the, the athletic is looking around and says, what am I going to cut? There's no big outcry. There is in the track community, but in the general public track, we have a track program. I mean, that, that's sort of where it is. And I, 
I think um, one, if, if track's going to stay in the collegiate system, it, it has to do a better job of promoting itself within the athletic department and within, within the community that, that the, the university is in, or two, it needs to, the uh, elite track needs to find a, a feeder system that's independent of the university system. And so that's tricky. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how they go about that. Uh, the pandemic, I, I think, was instructive in one way. Um, uh, here in Portland, uh, Portland track, a bunch of innovative uh, thinkers, um, they staged some meets uh, just on their own, uh, finding a way to work within the, some fairly strict pandemic guidelines here in Oregon. Um, and, and they had some pretty good competition doing that. Um, I think other places did that. Michigan, uh, Southern California, Atlanta found ways to do that. And to me, that's, that's a way to, to maybe uh, re revitalize the sport at the grassroots level. Go out and, you know, Joe and Sally, maybe, you know, it doesn't cost that much to go watch the track meet. Let, let, there's a couple of Olympians in the, the field. Let's go watch it and, and create a, a sort of a spectator base that, that's independent from colleges and, and the college uh, concerns. Now, you know, if it's going to be a developmental system, you're going to have to do it not just with Olympians. You're going to have to start um, at the youth level. But I, I, to me, that's the easiest step. I mean, I, I think um, track is such a great sport for kids. But to me, that, that's the, at the entry level is, is the perfect place to, to try to reawaken the sport. My, my daughter competed in track. She wasn't very good, but it, one of the reasons she did it was they accept everybody, right? You can come, you can come and you can, you know, uh, not very fast. Well, how far can you throw or, or can you jump or um, you can find a niche. Any, anybody can find a niche in the sport. And then you don't have to be great, right? You, you can measure yourself against yourself. You can, you can say, here is where I was in, in uh, March. And now here I am in June and, and look at how much I've improved in. And, and if you have enough people doing that, you're going to have some people who are pretty good. And those people uh, can then develop you know, into elite level athletes, independent of the college system. Yeah, that last thought takes us back full circle to when you first started in the sport, the concerns about the specialized knowledge. But yet, as you said, there's a niche for everyone. It's part of the beauty of this sport that everyone can participate and we can participate regardless of age. We are connected to this. At, we just mentioned Galen Rupp's skill level, but also your daughter, and also the first time marathoner and it, it links us and hopefully we can make that connection to people in a unique way that not all other sports can. I, I was going to ask you your thoughts on, on innovation that we learned from 2020. So, so you hit some great ideas there. You mentioned Michigan, they did like the, uh, the pro Ekaden uh, relay, which is a, a fun new concept here in the States. We have the marathon project coming up in Arizona get some elite uh, domestic marathoners. I guess the, the thing that we're going to have to work on maybe as, a, as fans of the sport is, is promoting ourselves and getting those events out there for people to see. And as you said, also the dilemma that, that a college coach faces in trying to hit qualifying marks, but have home meets and get people in the stands. Uh, those, those are big questions that we're going to have to wrestle with moving forward, as you said, from this uh, 2020 tipping point. 
So when you look ahead now, um, what races or maybe particular athletes are you most excited to watch now as a spectator? Well, I'll start by saying I hope to continue contributing to this to uh, professional publications as a freelance writer. So hopefully I won't be just a spectator. <laughs> but yeah, no, to me, the Olympic trials are, are really fun. That's I like the trials maybe better than the Olympics. Uh, the Olympics are uh, such a big event and uh, media access is so difficult. But the trials is everybody's still accessible and, and it's exciting. And there's often great stories of people that nobody expected to, to show up and do well. First time I saw Jordan Hase run was in the 2008 um, Olympics, Olympic trials. And she's just this little girl with really long hair who was in there, you know, trading elbows and, and battling for a, a spot. And I believe in the women's 1500 meter final. Um, there's always stories like that coming out of the, the Olympic trials. You know, there's a lot of uh, local runners who are fun to watch. Um, uh, Raven Rogers is one uh, 800 meter specialist at the University of Oregon who's now training with uh, Pete Julian's training group. Uh, you know, Julian's got a, several really good runners, uh, Donovan Brazier, obviously, and Craig Engels, uh, who are, are, are credits to the sport, not only with their talent, but their uh, willingness to engage with fans and, and uh, I, you know, I should have mentioned Engels when I was mentioning all the, the great athletes who are great about promoting themselves because he's awesome. And he's uh, very unpretentious, just sort of a, a friendly guy who also happens to be really good at track and, and is uh, not off-putting at all. And neither is Brazier. He's not quite as uh, much of a showman as Engels, but, but he's really good and, and very friendly and very accessible. And, uh, you know, Shelby Houlihan, uh, uh, is another athlete who's uh, very competitive. I mean, she, she runs to win. I don't, I don't think, no, she cares about time. She, she's going to get to the finish line first if it kills her. And, uh, you know, I love to watch uh, somebody like that run. I mean, so those, those are a few people. Uh, all the people I mentioned before who are, are still competing. Uh, I think English Gardner's still going at it. Uh, she's really fun. You know, the, the list is endless. And like I said, I, I hate to start mentioning names because I know I'm going to leave somebody else out, I'm going to leave somebody out, which I don't want to do. So, sure. Uh, you mentioned the 08 800 meter as one of the great events that you were able to cover. Is there a most impressive performance that you have seen? And maybe it's not even in track. Maybe in in other sports that I, that you've covered there, where you saw human skill level reach heights that you had maybe never seen before or never expected to see? Well, the, to me, the obvious answer is Ashton Eaton. Though, uh, he is, his world record has now since been broken, but when he set the, the world record for the first time in the 2012 Olympic trials was another one of those uh, men's 800 moments where the, the crowd reaction was unbelievable because uh, I believe Scott Davis was the PA announcer then, I think. If it was somebody else, I apologize. But, but I believe it was Scott Davis who was, doing a very good job of updating the, the crowd as to exactly what he had to do in that 1500 meters to set the world record. And then the, to me, the other thing that was cool was how the other competitors were pulling for him, the other competitors in the race. And I believe it was Curtis Beach sort of paced him to, to get to the, to the uh, record and then stood aside so he could cross first. Beach was a better 1500 meter runner and uh, had he been trying to win that race uh, he would have, but 
for him, it was a bit, it was Ashton's moment and, and he stood aside and, and let him uh, get the record. And uh, Ashton was beloved at Hayward field and the, the crowd just went bonkers. He, he's another one of those people that that's very friendly and accessible and, and just a genuine person. Uh, so that, that, that stands out as, you know, I get, I'll get on my soapbox here. I hear people talk about the, the best athletes and, and people will make a case for LeBron James or, you know, whoever. I defy anybody from any other sport to do in the decathlon what a decathlon world record can do, world record holder can do. The, the combination of skills uh, that are designed to measure athleticism that includes speed, strength, body control, um, technical knowledge, technical expertise, LeBron James is a phenomenal athlete. I'm not here to say he's not. Um, I'd like to see him pole vault. I, I just don't think that would happen. So um, to me, uh, Ashton Eaton is the best athlete I've ever been around. The, the set of abilities to be a, a decathlete at his level is breathtaking, uh, no doubt. Ken, it has been great to talk with you. And I hope we get to read your coverage of track and field for years to come and other sources and, and hopefully a little bit still at the Oregonian. It, it is always a must read when you cover big events. And so we've appreciated your perspective and what you have done to, to share the beauty of this sport and its great moments with readers, not just there in, in the Portland area, but all over the country, us here in the Eastern time zone too, we, we've loved your work for many years. So it, it has really been a joy to have you on Seconds Flat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Before we go, we have a quick cross-country update. Our man Cohen Roberts, who joined us for Mile 61, bagged a top 20 finish at the ACC Championships. A great performance for his freshman campaign. Our thanks again to Ken, and thank you for listening. If you have any questions or show topic ideas, please email us, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you again next time.